0: Volume One, Chapter One of A Popular History of England, From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter A Popular History of England, From the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by François-Pierre Guillaume guizot Chapter 1 Ancient Populations of Britain, Roman Dominion, 55 BC to 411 AD The earliest periods of English history are obscure, and even the origin of its inhabitants is still a subject of discussion. The first authentic information which we possess with regard to them is derived from their conqueror, Julius Caesar remarked their resemblance to the Gauls, and modern researches have confirmed his testimony. Everything seems to show that the inhabitants of Britain were Celts or Gales, a name which the population of the highlands of Scotland retain to this day. On the southern coasts, an invasion of Cymres, or Belgians, appears to have mingled with the Celtic population and to have brought with it some elements of civilization long before the advent of caesar the phoenicians and greeks established at marseilles had entered into relations of commerce with the Scilly isles which they called the Cassiterides, and also with the extremity of the county of cornwall where the tin mines were situated pytheus who lived at marseilles at the commencement of the fourth century bc has related his voyage along the coast of britain but it is with the invasion of the Romans that the history of England commences. It is here that we penetrate for the first time into those islands which, though separated from the rest of the world, sent to the Gauls, who were struggling for their independence, succour, which furnished Caesar with a pretext for the attempt to conquer them. After his fourth campaign in Gaul, about the year 55 BC, the great Roman general set sail on the 26th of August for Britain. He had brought with him the infantry of two legions, about 12,000 men, and he disembarked near the point where the town of Deal is now situated. The Britons had gathered in a mass upon the shore. A great number were on horseback, urging their horses into the waves and insulting and defying the foreigners. They were almost entirely naked, having cast off the clothing of skins with which they were ordinarily covered in order to prepare for the combat their war-chariots were driven rapidly along the shore for a moment the roman soldiers hesitated troubled by the unaccustomed sight perhaps from a dread of offending the unknown gods of people celebrated among their gaulish brethren for the devotion with which they surrounded the druidical faith the standard-bearer of the tenth legion was the first to precipitate himself into the sea follow me my fellow soldiers said he unless you will give up your eagle to the enemy i at least will do my duty to the republic and to our general his comrades followed his example and the savage inhabitants of britain retired in disorder driven back in spite of their bravery after a short engagement on the morrow ambassadors from the britons came to solicit peace at the first rumour of the projected invasion, they had sent emissaries into Gaul to offer their submission to the Romans, in the hope of turning them from their enterprise. Caesar had listened to them with kindness, and had had them conducted by his own envoy, Commius, king of the Belgian atrebates but he did not relinquish his intentions, and the Britons, in their irritation, had put the delegate of Caesar in irons. This was the first matter with which the conqueror reproached them, at the same time demanding hostages for their future good behaviour. Some hostages were immediately given. The British chiefs asked for time to send others, and Caesar entered into separate negotiations with the chiefs who came one after the other to treat with the conqueror. During these negotiations, the sea rendered aid to the Britons. Great part of the Roman fleet was destroyed. The barbarians perceived their advantage and were dilatory in sending the hostages. Meanwhile Caesar had promptly set his soldiers to the task of repairing the vessels and making requisitions upon the Gauls for the materials which were required. The vessels were beginning to be in a state to take the sea when the Seventh Legion, detached on a foraging expedition in the country, was surprised in the only field of grain then standing by a number of Britons who were lying in ambush concealed by the long stalks of the corn. Horsemen and war chariots issued forth from the surrounding forests. The Romans ran the risk of being crushed when Caesar came to their assistance with the remainder of his forces and defeated the barbarians, who sued for peace. The equinox was approaching. The general did not even wait for the hostages but set sail for Gaul in the middle of September, sending at the same time news to Rome, which induced the Senate to decree 20 days of public thanksgivings to the immortal gods. In his commentaries, however, Caesar modestly describes this first campaign in Britain as a reconnoitering expedition. He cherished the design of returning thither later. Accordingly, in the following year, 54 BC, caesar embarked at the same point upon the coast of gaul in order to land at the same spot though with very different forces he carried with him the infantry of five legions about thirty thousand men and two thousand cavalry eight hundred transport vessels covered the sea from the summits of their cliffs the britons had perceived this formidable expedition and had sought refuge in the vast forests which cover their shores caesar marched forward to drive them back into their retreats when a violent tempest destroyed forty of his ships and drove a great number ashore the first care of the conqueror was to protect his fleet against the fury of the sea and the hostility of the islanders he caused all his vessels to be hauled ashore in order to surround them afterwards by a strong entrenchment his largest galleys were diminutive in comparison with our vessels of war his transport ships were hardly more than barges. The Roman soldiers laboured without intermission ten days and ten nights before they had rendered their fleet secure. They then resumed their march against the Britons, whose army was still increasing. All the chiefs had united their forces under the orders of a commander-in-chief, Cassivellanus, king of the Cassai, renowned for his bravery and skill. The Britons avoided a general engagement, assailing the Romans incessantly with their cavalry and their war chariots, which they conducted with the ease of habit even along the edges of precipices, they retired again into the forests from the moment that the advantage was no longer on their side. But this barbarian intrepidity was not accompanied by experience. Caesar's cavalry, supported by three legions, having scoured the country in quest of forage, the enemy had remained concealed all day when suddenly they issued in a mass from the neighbouring forests and swept down upon the Romans who were scattered about the country. Already the Britons imagined themselves victors but the well-disciplined Roman detachments formed again as if by enchantment. The horsemen rallied and the Britons, enclosed in a formidable circle, sustained losses so great that on the morrow the allies of Cassivellanus nearly all deserted him and returned into their territories, leaving him to face the Romans unsupported. The king in his turn fell back upon his kingdom, which was situated on the left bank of the Thames. In their pursuit, the Romans had traversed the fertile country which now forms the counties of Kent and Surrey, while this skirmishing species of warfare continued, often with results favourable to the Britons. But the fatal want of union, common to barbarous tribes, lent aid to the Romans. Cassivellanus was detested by his neighbours, the Trinobantes, who sent ambassadors to Caesar, asking the restoration of their king, Mandubratius, a fugitive in Gaul, where he had implored the protection of the Romans against this same Cassivellanus, who had conquered and put to death the father of his rival on this condition the trinobantes offered their submission some other tribes followed their example these seceders acquainted the romans with the road to cassivellanus's capital situated on the environs of the spot now occupied by the town of st albans this was a collection of huts reminding beholders of the dwellings of the gauls they rested on a foundation made of stones, from which arose the walls, composed of timber, earth, and reeds, and surmounted by a conical roof, which served at once to admit daylight and to allow smoke to escape through a hole in the top. Fens and woods, surrounded by a ditch and earthworks, protected this primitive capital, which soon fell into the hands of the Romans. Cassivellanus had only one hope left— he had given orders to the four chiefs who had the command in Kent to attack the Roman vessels. They obeyed, but the detachment charged with the protection of the fleet was on its guard. The Britons were repulsed. Cassivellanus, beaten and discouraged, humbled himself so far as to sue for peace. Nevertheless, when Caesar at the commencement of September retired once more to Gaul, he left in Britain neither a soldier nor a fortress the second campaign longer and more fortunate than the first had not produced any greater results ninety-six years elapsed the roman republic had become the roman empire but the britons had been troubled by no new invasion the belgian population of the sea coast had continued to cultivate their fields to which they already knew how to apply marl for manure. They had woven in peace their long brogues or chequered breeches, their square mantles and their tunics. The Celts, more savage, had seen their flocks multiply around them. Even this, the only kind of wealth among barbarous tribes, did not exist in the northern part of Britain. The rude inhabitants of Scotland depended only on the products of the chase, and found a shelter for their almost naked state in the hollow of rocks or in the obscurity of caverns. But no invader had come to trouble their wild liberty up to the day when the Emperor Claudius, in the year 45 of the Christian era, conceived the project of marching in the footsteps of Caesar and subduing the savage land of Britain. One of the most experienced of his generals, Aulus Plautius, sent forward with a force of 50,000 men, obtained at first some successes, notwithstanding the resistance of the chief of the Silures, Caractacus. When the emperor arrived, the capital of this people was captured, and several tribes had submitted almost without a struggle. Claudius returned to Rome to enjoy there the honours of an easy triumph. Thirty battles fought by Aulus Plautius were insufficient to reduce Caractacus. Ostorius Scapula was the first to succeed in establishing on the Severn a line of forts separating from the rest of the island the country, now become Roman, which comprised nearly all the southern tribes. The Britons, who appeared to be subdued, were disarmed. But a new insurrection soon broke forth. The Iceni who occupied the country now known as the counties of Norfolk and Suffolk, were the first to rise. The Kanji followed their example, and in order to reduce them, the Praetor was compelled to pursue them as far as to within one day's march of the sea, which separates England from Ireland. From the territory of the Brigantes, which embraced a portion of the present counties of Lancashire and York, astorius hastened to invade the silures who inhabited the southern portion of wales and who were always the most indomitable opponents of a foreign domination behold the day which is to decide the fate of britain exclaimed caractacus at the sight of the romans Today begins the era either of liberty or eternal slavery remember that your ancestors were able to drive back the great caesar and to save their liberty their life and their honor. He spoke in vain. The naked breasts and bare heads of the Britons could not resist the broad swords of the Roman soldiers. The massacre was horrible. The wife and the daughter of Caractacus were captured, but the chief himself had disappeared. Hoping to renew the struggle, he had taken refuge with his mother-in-law, Cartis Mandua, Queen of the Brigantes she delivered him up to the Romans. Caractacus was sent to Rome with his family. "'How can men who possess such palaces "'make such efforts to conquer our miserable hovels?' exclaimed the British hero while traversing the streets of Rome. "'He appeared before the tribunal of the emperor. "'Agrippina was there by the side of her husband. "'The wife of Caractacus threw herself at her feet, "'imploring her pity.' But the conquered chief asked for nothing and exhibited no sign of fear. This greatness in defeat penetrated to the heart and to the sluggish mind of Claudius. He gave the order to set the captives free. Tradition states that he even restored to his prisoner a portion of his territory. But Tacitus does not mention this. He leaves the story of the vanquished chief at the point where the fetters fall from his hands. For a moment, Nero, who had become emperor, thought of abandoning the conquest of Britain so difficult to secure. It was not until the year 59 AD that Paulinus Suetonius, at that time Praetor, resolved to crush the resistance of the Britons in their innermost retreat. The island of Mona, now Anglesey, was consecrated to the Druid worship. The priests had nearly all taken refuge there and there the defeated chiefs found an asylum. Religion even then exercised a considerable power over the minds of the inhabitants of Britain. In no part were the Druids more numerous and powerful. Nowhere had they a greater number of disciples diligently occupied during long years in engraving upon their memory the regulations of their worship, the sacred maxims, the ancient poems, which the priests did not allow to be committed to writing. Great, therefore, was the emotion in Britain when the Romans were seen to attack the Holy Isle. On the shore, a great crowd awaited the advance of the enemy, savage and diversified in appearance, says Tacitus. The armed men were assembled in a mass. The women, attired in sombre dress, running about with disheveled hair, like furies brandishing their torches. And the druids were standing, clothed in their long white robes, as if about to sacrifice to their gods, their heads shaved, their beards long, their hands raised to heaven, while they pronounced the terrible maledictions of the Celtic races against the enemies of their people and their divinities. The Roman soldiers hesitated, their limbs seemed paralysed by fear, and they exposed themselves, without resisting, to the blows of their enemies. Their general urged them to advance. At length, each encouraging the other to despise the infuriated cries of a band of priests and women, they rushed upon the Britons, and precipitated them upon the stakes which they had prepared in order to sacrifice the Roman prisoners to their gods. A garrison was placed on the island, the sacred grove was cut down, and the fugitive druids disappeared to seek an asylum among the tribes which still offered a resistance. The number of these tribes had increased in the absence of the Praetor. The infamous treatment inflicted upon Bodicea, queen of the Iceni, and her children by order of the procurator Catus had aroused the indignation of her neighbours as well as of her own subjects by secret intrigues the malcontents from all quarters were invited to strike a great blow for the recovery of their liberty the colony of camalodunum was first attacked and put to fire and sword suetonius hastened from the isle of mona and marched first towards london already an important and populous city defence was impossible the Praetor withdrew the garrison to protect the rest of the provinces, and all the citizens who had not been able to retire under the shelter of the Roman eagles were massacred. The Roman colony of Verulam suffered the same fate. It is said that more than 70,000 Romans and their allies had already perished under the blows of the insurgents when the two armies found themselves confronted. "'Queen Boadicea rode along the ranks of the Britons, "'clothed in a robe of various colours, "'with a golden zone around her waist. "'She reminded her countrymen "'that she was not the first woman who had led them to battle, "'since the custom of the country often called to the throne "'the widow of a sovereign, passing over his children. "'She spoke of the irreparable insults which she had undergone, "'of the misfortunes of the nation,' and she exhorted the warriors to immolate all the Romans to Andastra, the goddess of victory. The Romans remained motionless. They were awaiting the attack of the Britons. The barbarians, excited by the glowing words of the queen, rushed upon the legions. The Romans bestirred themselves at length, and their broad swords opened for them a passage through the midst of the mass of Britons. The latter fell without flinching. But their enemy advanced to the line of chariots and put to the sword women and children it is said though no doubt with the usual exaggeration of the time that eighty thousand britons perished on that day bodicea resolved not to survive her hopes of vengeance poisoned herself upon the battlefield successive praetors had failed to establish tranquillity in britain or to obtain the submission of the people when Agricola, father-in-law of the celebrated historian Tacitus, arrived in his turn in this indomitable island. His brilliant exploits soon caused him to be respected, but, while pursuing year by year the course of his conquests, he endeavoured to found the Roman rule upon the most durable basis. In his hands, the civil administration became milder. The Britons, governed with justice, became gradually less estranged from their conquerors. A taste for luxury and Roman civilization began to distinguish the chiefs admitted to the Praetorian court. The Roman toga took the place of the British mantle. Buildings arose upon the model of the Roman constructions. Children began to speak Latin, and at the same time, the spirit of liberty and resistance diminished among the inhabitants of the south of Britain the britons willingly furnish recruits to our armies wrote tacitus they pay the taxes without murmuring and they perform with zeal their duties towards the government provided they have not to complain of oppression when they are offended their resentment is prompt and violent they may be conquered but not tamed they may be led to obedience but not to servitude the military progress of the Roman general was no less important than his moral conquests. He had reached the Firth of Forth and the narrow isthmus which separates this river from the mouth of the Clyde. After every new victory he protected the subjected territory with forts. He even constructed a wall, the ruins of which, crossing the north of England from the Solway to the mouth of the Tyne, bear to this day his name. In the eighth and ninth year of his government he passed the line of the forts and penetrated into scotland the country of the caledonians savage tribes who had not yet beheld the roman eagles scarcely had the conquerors invaded this new territory when the caledonians under the command of their chief galgacus descended from the grampian hills and fell upon the invader on ardoch moor Traces of the combat still exist, together with the lines of the Roman encampment. The struggle lasted all day, and the barbarians were defeated. But on the morrow at sunrise they had disappeared, and the Romans found themselves alone in the midst of a wild country. In their flight, the Caledonians had set fire to their habitations, and with their own hands had slain their wives and children to prevent their falling victims to the vengeance of the conqueror. The savage tribes had returned into their mountains leaving according to the chronicles ten thousand dead upon the field of battle agricola made no effort to pursue them falling back towards the south he dispatched his vessels to make a voyage of exploration all round the island the northern shores of which had not yet been visited the mariners returned reporting that no tongue of land connected britain with the continent that they had seen in the distance Thule, Iceland, enveloped in mists and eternal snow, and that the seas which they had traversed were of a sluggish kind, heavy under the oar, and never agitated by wind or storms. Agricola was recalled to Rome through the jealousy of the Emperor Domitian, but his wise government had appeased the passions of the Britons, and for thirty years afterwards the Roman annals contained no mention of British affairs an evidence that peace reigned in the island. An invasion of the Caledonians brought the Emperor Hadrian to Britain, 120 AD. Having driven them back beyond the forts which connected the mouth of the Solway on the west with that of the Tyne on the eastern coast, he caused to be raised behind this rampart an enormous wall fortified by a wide foss and provided with towers which received a garrison. This redoubt is still partly in existence, as is the wall of Antoninius, constructed some years later across the Isthmus of the fourth, after a fresh invasion of the barbarians. No rampart, however, could resist the warlike ardour of these savage populations, and the disorganisation which had attacked the vast body of the empire began to make itself felt among the legions established in Britain. The soldiers often murmured, the general, Albinus, after having refused the title of Caesar from the hands of the emperor Commodus, accepted it upon the offer of Septimius Cerberus, and, suddenly rejecting his allegiance, he was proclaimed emperor by his troops. Crossing immediately into Gaul to sustain his pretensions by force of arms, he was defeated near Réveau, and paid for his ambition by the loss of his head, but he had brought with him and had sacrificed the best of the troops in Britain, both Roman and native. The Caledonians took advantage of this opportunity to redouble their efforts, and the case became so grave that the emperor left Rome to oppose them, 207 AD. Septimius Severus was old and infirm, but his spirit was still unsubdued. When he entered into Caledonia with his son Caracalla, he brought in his train enormous armaments. His enemies were badly armed. They carried only the short sword and the target, which their descendants in the highlands still employed during the wars of the last century. But they were skilled to take advantage of the natural defences of their country, and without being able to meet the Caledonians in a fixed battle, the emperor had lost, it is said, 50,000 men before abandoning his expedition. He had carried the name and arms of the Romans so far that he had no intention of retaining the territory which he had traversed. He left there neither fortress nor garrison, but when he had returned into the subjected territory, he separated it from Caledonia by a new rampart, more imposing than all those of his predecessors. For two years the legions were employed in constructing it in stone, fortifying it with towers, and surrounding it with roads. The remains of this gigantic work attest to this day the power of those who raised it. The Caledonians, however, had just attempted another invasion when the emperor, who was marching against them, died at York, 2.11 A.D., and his son caracalla compelled to hasten back to rome to protect the safety of the empire hurriedly concluded with the rude tribes a peace which lasted for some years it was not until the year two hundred and twenty eight under the reign of diocletian and maximilian that the dangers which threatened britain again disturbed the repose of the emperors her shores were threatened by saxon and scandinavian pirates a commander of Belgian origin named Carousius was sent against them, who crowned his success by causing himself to be proclaimed emperor by his legions. Diocletian conferred on him the title of Caesar. This new sovereign was assassinated at York and succeeded in the year 297 by his minister Electus, who himself fell soon after before the power of Constantius Chlorus. When this prince died at York, his son Constantine, proclaimed emperor by his troops, carried with him on leaving Britain a great number of the young men of the country eager to serve in his armies. The Roman Empire no longer existed. The distant seat of power had been transferred to Constantinople. The province of Britain escaped from the imperial watchfulness. It was at the same time ill-defended. The Caledonians at this period had yielded their place, either in fact or in name, to the Picts, so called perhaps by the Romans, on account of the colours with which they painted their bodies. Side by side with them, and often driving them back upon their own territory, were the Scots, originally from Ireland, from which country they crossed over in so great a number in their little flat-bottomed boats. That they finally gave their own name to the country they invaded. Under the Emperor Valentinian, we find them pursuing their depredations as far as London and driven back to their own country with great difficulty by Theodosius, father of Theodosius the Great. Before him and after his death in the year 393, Britain presented a similar spectacle to that of the other Roman provinces. The generals who were in command there were proclaimed emperors by their legions, assassinated by their rivals, or decapitated by order of the sovereign rulers of Rome or Constantinople from the moment that they attempted to leave the island to extend their conquests. Every one of these attempts cost Britain a number of soldiers and contributed to weaken a race already deteriorated by foreign domination. In 420, under the Emperor Honorius, when the Empire was expiring under the attacks of the barbarians, the Britons deposing the Roman magistrates proclaimed their independence, which was immediately recognised by the Emperor. But the Britons were not in a condition to struggle against the invaders who were pressing them on all sides. Like the Roman Empire, their country was fated to fall into the hands of the barbarians. Like the Roman Empire, however, Britain had already received the principle which was destined to save her from complete desolation. In the midst of political disorganisation and of power distributed among a hundred petty chiefs, all enemies and rivals, she had already heard the only name which had been given to men for their salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ had been proclaimed upon her shores, at what epoch or by whom is not known? Probably Rome brought with her arms the Christian faith to the British people. The Christians were numerous in the imperial armies and their zeal often won to Jesus Christ, the souls of the vanquished. Up to the reign of Diocletian, the progress of Christianity in Britain was not impeded by any severity. At that epoch, 303 to 305, the great persecution which was raging throughout the empire extended itself to Britain. Constantius Chlorus, who was then governor, favorable though he was to the gospel, was nevertheless unable to avoid calling around him the officers of his household and announcing to them the necessity of either relinquishing their trusts or abjuring the name of Christ. Those who were cowardly enough to prefer earthly greatness to Christian fidelity Found themselves disappointed in their ambitious hopes. The general immediately deprived them of office, remarking that men faithless to their God would be equally wanting in fidelity to their emperor. But the moderation of Constantius Chlorus was insufficient to extinguish the persecuting zeal of the inferior magistrates, and the British church soon counted its martyrs. The Christians took refuge in the forests and the hills. They were able to find brethren among the rude tribes of the north. For Tertullian tells us that in the portion of Britain where the arms of the Romans had failed to penetrate, Jesus Christ had conquered souls. With the power of Constantine, Christianity ascended the throne. The British church was organized. She had sent three bishops to the Council of Arles in 314. But Britain was about to undergo a new yoke and her dawning Christianity was destined to encounter other enemies. End of chapter 1